Welcome to episode 175, DSM-5-TR, What's New, A Review, and Limitations, featuring Dr. Stephanie Wu. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software build for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearlyclinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I am just delighted and honored today to be joined by my dear colleague, Dr. Stephanie Wu. Uh, she is the Assistant Dean of Online Psychology Programs at Pepperdine University, and she is also the author of a book specifically about the DSM-5, and she's joining us today to talk about the changes uh, between DSM-5 and DSM-5-TR, and I'm just grateful for her knowledge and helping translate what is a very big book with very specific changes for those of us uh, that are listening today. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here, Beth. So why don't you take a moment and please tell our listeners a little bit more about you and about your background and then how you got so good at understanding and interpreting the DSM. (laughs) You are too kind. You're too kind. Um, Sure. I am a licensed psychologist. I got my doctorate uh, at UCLA's clinical psychology program and um, have been a professor in the psychology division at the Graduate School of Education and Psychology at Pepperdine University since 1999. I'm going to date myself. So I've been there for for quite some time. I used to direct one of the master's in clinical psychology programs up on the Malibu campus and then transitioned uh, to be the assistant dean of the online psychology programs at GSEP. And I teach courses at Pepperdine uh, on uh, diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders. So this is really an area that I love to teach about. Um, I also teach courses in psychological assessment and cognitive and behavioral interventions. And I kind of really got into the DSM, obviously, when I was a, a student, a graduate student, and I did a postdoc in psychological assessment at UCLA. But when I started teaching uh, on courses on diagnosis and treatment of mental health disorders, you know, I had to learn the DSM inside and out. And so, you know, got to understand some of its strengths, some of its uh, areas for growth, and um, decided to actually author, co-author the textbook that you um, mentioned um, with a colleague at Pepperdine, Dr. Carolyn Keating, because when we were teaching um, these courses, she also taught courses on diagnosis and, and treatment of mental health disorders. We were just really dissatisfied with the books that were out there. And we wanted um, to create something that was practical for students that could be used as a resource after they graduated. And so we had this idea of creating our own textbook. And that's where that textbook was really born out of. It was from teaching um, about uh, the DSM and about um, treatment of mental health disorders. Well, thank you. Um, Because I think for those of us that are going through the day-to-day of direct care delivery, changes to the DSM, while important, I think can feel hard to stay up on. Um, So thank you to folks like you who are trying to ease that process for the rest of us. Um, 
dating myself here, but I remember when prior new editions came out and then I read all of those updates and then a new one came out and I went, wait, we just went through this. And I look at the calendar and go, nope, that was many years ago. Um, so thank you for trying to keep us up to date. <laughs> It is really challenging. You're welcome. Uh, you know, it, it is really challenging to keep up with those updates. And, and you know, I think I think the DSM has a little bit of a PR problem in that, you know, a lot of people have ideas about the DSM, um, especially about its limitations. And, um, and, and oftentimes, you know, don't have the time or ability to really get into the weeds of what's in the manual. I mean, it's small print, it's very dense. And so, you know, it's hard to kind of wrap your mind around what, all of what's in there. And then, of course, when it changes, that becomes, you know, even a bigger challenge, I think. Absolutely. For our listeners, can you just briefly cover why was there a text revision, the quote unquote TR to the DSM-5? Why was it necessary? What does it mean for us as practitioners? Sure. Um, so DSM-5 came out in 2013. And when the DSM-5 TR version came out, which was in March of last year of 2022, at that point, the DSM-5 was already nine years old, almost a decade old. And that's quite a long time for new research to come out on um, you know, prevalence of disorders, about comorbidities, about different aspects of the clinical presentation of disorders. So um, because there's often these large gaps between when major revisions of the DSM come out, it makes sense to do these text revisions where new information can be folded into the manual without really substantially changing the diagnostic criteria for disorders. And so that was really um, the aim of the DSM 5TR. Um, it involved, you know, a lot of experts. I think there were over 200 different people who were involved in the revision process for DSM-5. Um, a lot of those people worked on the DSM-5 as well. And a lot of the revisions were done um, not just to bring in new information from the literature, but, you know, there were problems with the clarity of the wording of some of the diagnostic criteria that, you know, created confusion for clinicians. Um, so it was also to, to make revisions, you know, kind of for clarity. Th there is one interesting thing to note about the, the revision is that for DSM-5-TR, there is a new disorder that was put into the TR. It's this um, disorder called prolonged grief disorder. And so even though it's called a text revision, which really implies the majority of the changes are to the text portions of the DSM. So all of the portions of the DSM outside of those criteria boxes that have all of the different symptoms and the criteria for different disorders, um, the DSM-5-TR did go a little bit beyond that because it included um, an actual, you know, new disorder. So, so strictly speaking, they kind of cheated a little bit. It's not just a text revision. They added a diagnosis. Thank you. That's helpful information. And the way you're talking about it makes me think it was the only new diagnosis that was introduced in the DSM-5-TR. And otherwise, the diagnoses stay the same with the exception of prolonged grief disorder. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's that's pretty much correct. I mean, the, w when we talk about some of the other changes, there um, was another like category called unspecified mood disorder that was added that is really kind of like a catch-all category. There were some kind of little changes like that, but in terms of like something very different, very new, that one disorder is kind of the, the biggest uh, change. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. So, I'm curious, like, where would you like to go? Because this is such a, as you said, such a dense book in small text. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, yeah. what is what is my next question. <laughs> so why don't we start by talking about some of the continuities and differences in the DSM-5 TR compared to the DSM-5 and the DSM-4? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start because um, it's helpful to kind of know the evolution of the different manuals and how they've changed over time. So there are a lot of things that DSM-5-TR keeps the same as what was in DSM-5 and, and even like DSM-4-TR and DSM-4 in terms of kind of like... Um, overall structure and the way that disorders are conceptualized. So I think the function of the DSM manual kind of remains the same as it has been for many iterations, kind of going back, I think, to DSM-3, which is at its heart, it's really a manual for um, or a system for organizing and communicating information about mental disorders that is intended to be used by diverse practitioners, practitioners of different theoretical orientations. If you go way, way back to DSM-1, DSM-2, so this is like going back to the 1950s, late 1960s, when those manuals were were published, they were very much influenced by psychoanalytic theory. And if you look at the diagnoses, you can see that reflected in the wording that's used. You know, there were d disorders like depressive neurotic reaction. Um, and then DSM-3 really kind of was this sea change where we had these more um, specified criteria sets. It was atheoretical at that point. So, um, the criteria sets were not coming from a particular theoretical tradition, and that continues into the DSM-5 uh, TR today. And it's really conceptualized as a tool for clinicians, one tool of many in their toolkit. Um, and as a, an educational reference for students who are learning about different mental health disorders um, and a tool for, for researchers. Um, although, you know, some researchers are increasingly kind of moving away from the way that DSM conceptualizes mental disorders. Um, the DSM is not intended to be um, a treatment manual. So it doesn't address treatment at all. And and in some ways, you know, I think there are practitioners who wish, gosh, wouldn't it be great if the DSM could provide guidance on treatment? I think that is just maybe too tall of an order for any one manual to do. Um, and of course, there are many different exciting treatments that are available to address, you know, different mental health conditions. So, um, you know, it would be hard to include all of them in a manual that also is trying to address diagnosis. So, um, so kind of the aim of the manual is the same. It still conceptualizes mental disorders in the same way as DSM-5, 4TR, 4, 
you know, and going back to three did, which is it's a categorical system, you know, so there are lists of symptoms, you usually need a subset to get a diagnosis. If you also have impairment and or distress, and those symptoms aren't due to another medical condition or to something like substances. And there's kind of a magic number for different disorders, you know, of the number of symptoms that you need. And, you know, the the pluses of that kind of system, and I think the reason it's been retained is because it's clinically uh, useful, it's easy to use. It's easier to use, you know, but there are limitations, right? Because who decided that, you know, five was the magic number, you know, for a certain disorder. Um, And I think there are, you know, there have been observations across time about the very high rates of comorbidity um, of disorders, of the number of individuals who fall into what used to be called not otherwise specified categories, which are now called other specified and other unspecified diagnoses in the DSM-5 system, essentially people who don't meet criteria for one of the other disorders described in the manual, but have enough symptoms, impairment, and or distress where there's a feeling on the clinician's part, this person likely is suffering from some kind of mental health condition that um, should be documented, but they have to be given this kind of catch-all diagnosis. And I think that's one of the limitations of um, that categorical system. But for better or for worse, that's kind of, you know, a, a, a continuity from older versions of, of the DSM. And, you know, the DSM still thinks about disorders in terms of syndromes. So, collections of signs or symptoms, not just any one symptom indicating a disorder. Um, One of the reasons um, that the substance abuse disorders that were in DSM-4, this distinction between abuse and dependence for substance use disorders, that was removed um, in DSM-5. So that's an example of a of you know a discontinuity. But one of the reasons that the substance abuse diagnosis was removed was because as it was defined in DSM-4, you only needed one symptom. You could have as few as one symptom out of a list of four. And so that kind of went against this idea that mental health disorders are a collection of signs and symptoms, not just any one one thing. Um, so that's a continuity. It still continues to be what's, you know, it's been referred to as harmonized with the ICD system, the International Classification of Diseases. So all those number codes that clinicians use, those come from the International Classification of Diseases. And so it continues, you know, to to utilize that numeric system. Um, I would say those are kind of some of the main continuities or similarities. Um, Some differences, you know, uh, in terms of what did DSM-5 represent and 5TR. Um, I think there's an increasing recognition that's explicitly stated in the DSM that there are these limits to this categorical system of diagnosis. I mean, the, the DSM states this like explicitly and says, you know, basically, um, we don't assume that where we've cleaved these diagnoses represents kind of the absolute truth, that there's some big difference between people who are outside of those boundaries and within them. And so DSM is five, um, and this continues in 5TR, has tried to take this spectrum approach or more of a dimensional approach, kind of combining it 
with the categorical approach. So it's kind of trying to bring in something new while retaining the old system. And it did this in a fairly conservative way. So they didn't drastically change the way diagnoses were set up and make them all dimensional, but it did add dimensional aspects to certain diagnoses. So like, you know, as an example, just to to kind of give you an example, autism spectrum disorder in DSM-5 kind of combined autism, Asperger's, pervasive developmental disorder that had existed in previous versions into one disorder. And as a clinician, when you give autism spectrum disorder, not only do you give the diagnosis, but you have to give a severity rating on kind of two uh, areas, social communication and restrictive repetitive behaviors. And you have to kind of indicate how much support does the individual need? How severe are their symptoms in those two domains? And that's an attempt, I think, by the DSM-5, and it's continued into 5TR, of adding this dimensional element of saying there's a range of the way these disorders present. Similar for the substance use disorders, dependence and abuse were kind of removed. Now they're substance use disorders. You have to give a severity rating based on the number of symptoms. So that's a dimensional element. Um, There's also a kind of um, more subtle element that I think many practitioners don't necessarily know about unless they've gotten into the weeds of reading those introductory chapters in the DSM, which is the way that the disorders are organized by chapter in the manual itself is supposed to reflect this idea that disorders that are in chapters that are next to each other, that are adjacent, may share some underlying characteristics, whether those are risk factors, you know, vulnerability factors, commonalities in response to treatment, um, similarities in course, in um, family history patterns, things like that. And so you have kind of the internalizing disorders like together next to each other, like the depressive disorders are followed by the anxiety disorders. And you have externalizing disorders and conduct disorders followed by substance use disorders. And the intention, and I don't know if this has worked um, by the framers of the DSM, was that this would somehow stimulate people to think in new ways about how disorders are grouped. I think a lot of people don't even realize that this was done. And so they may not know this. So I don't know if that worked. Um, But that is kind of another nod to there are things that are on a spectrum and maybe there's different ways we can think about disorders, even though DSM has retained specific chapters that look very similar to chapters that, you know, existed in older versions of, of the manual. So I've got to say, hearing you speak about that, I've noticed that, but I didn't know if that was a coincidence. So thank you, because I've I've been like, oh, that's convenient. This is right next to that. We were just talking about them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So thank you for teaching me that that was intentional. Um, As we're talking about the DSM, and so for our listeners, Diagnostical Statistical Manual, Um, these various editions, you've already alluded to it a little bit, kind of this gradual shift in society, in the field, moving from a psychodynamic point to a more comprehensive, um, socially aware, culturally aware guide for diagnosis. In the conversation that we're having today, certainly we're operating in a system that 
expects some level of manualization in diagnosing. We are in a third-party payer system, so we need to assign a diagnosis code in order to render treatment. That's just the paradigm where we exist. And for our listeners, um, yes, there are absolutely complexities to that. And that's another conversation for another time. As you're looking at these different additions and seeing them shift, what do you kind of see happening in the trajectory? Because, I mean, just speaking for myself, and I know I'm not the only one that's had this thought, a disorder of personality. <laughs> to have a personality disorder makes my eye kind of twitch. Um, and there's some language that's been used in the DSM previously that is no longer used, but it was utilized in really, I think, oppressive ways. Can you speak to some of that in, in the trajectory and growth of the DSM over time? Yes, you know, I I think those are all really excellent points. And I think that, you know, the point that you're bringing up about this, this tension that exists for practitioners, for clinicians of, you know, kind of seeing the DSM as kind of a necessary means to an end, you know, for third party payment and and things like that. There was an interesting um, recent article that surveyed um, psychologists who were members of the American Psychological Association asking them about their views on the DSM and kind of comparing this to earlier research that had been done in the 80s and finding that kind of there were similar attitudes among, this was primarily psychologists, clinical psychologists um, who answered the survey to the DSM as had been found in the 80s. In other words, that they were mostly using it for the purposes of um, third-party payment for, um, you know, case conceptualization, I think was the next um, most commonly cited reason. But a lot of um, dissatisfaction with the manual and and it was interesting that that study found that it kind of varied by uh, theoretical orientation, psychodynamic and more humanistic um, therapists felt more critical uh, towards the, the DSM. CBT therapists were somewhat less critical, although no one was really crazy about the DSM. <laughs> no one was <laughs> gung-ho. You know, or no one was really gung-ho. And, it, and there were questions on that survey about, like, how interested are you in alternative systems for conceptualizing mental disorders? And there was a lot of interest. And some different models were mentioned. And the respondents were asked, like, have you heard of these? Do you know about these? Very few of them knew about them. And there was reluctance to just kind of get on board with alternative models because it was kind of like, well, um, we're comfortable with the kind of like the devil that we know rather than the devil that we don't know. And I think that that's kind of a, a tension that's going to exist as we move forward in thinking about um, mental disorders between the need for a practical, usable system and one that might be more valid, for lack of a better word, uh, in in understanding um, different forms of, of, of mental health disorders. Um, you know, the DSM is mostly a descriptive system. You know, it's looking at symptoms when they're apparent. And yet, you know, I think 
advances in treatment will be made when we can identify the very earliest signs that a disorder is brewing and try to intervene and head off um, you know, the disorder from fully developing. And the DSM system is not really set up for that because it's set up to describe the symptoms when they're there. And by that time, the person has, you know, kind of gone through that period of like a prodromal phase and they're, you know, kind of into the full-blown system. But but in terms of, you know, where things will go in the future, I think there's going to be this increasing emphasis on... Um, commonalities across diagnostic categories, trying to find risk factors that underlie different disorders. How can we identify those? And then how can we intervene? And the intervention would obviously be in different sources. It wouldn't be, I don't see the DSM ever going the realm of talking about treatment per se, whether that's of the disorder itself or prodromal um, phases of a disorder. Um, I think that the DSM is increasingly um, sensitive to, although I think, you know, there's obviously work that needs to be done on issues of diversity and equity. Um, you know, it was interesting when I was preparing for um, uh, for this um, interview, I looked at um, the DSM-4. I, I was looking at a um, an electronic version of the DSM-4. And I searched for the term racism. This was in DSM-4-TR. Okay, so this was in 2000. Um, and it didn't appear. I found it three times, but it was part of the word ostracism. And it was, it, it, so the term racism didn't even appear in DSM-4-TR. I looked for the term discrimination and it appeared three times in DSM-4-TR. Um, but only once did it mean prejudicial treatment. The other two times it was referring to like discrimination of sound for language of disorders. So, you know, in DSM-5, one of the changes, uh, one of the, I think, significant changes um, has been that there were these work groups that were specifically tasked with looking at um, including more inclusive language, making sure that there was reference to the impact of racism, discrimination, oppression on different aspects of um, the experience of, of mental disorders in terms of risk factors for these, in terms of access to treatment, uh, in terms of misdiagnosis. You know, for the first time, for example, in the section on the diagnosis of schizophrenia, it explicitly mentions that there has been this uh, history of misdiagnosis of individuals, particularly African-American individuals who have mood disorders, as having schizophrenia instead. And so I think that that really does represent a, a big change. You know, um, in DSM-4, there was this, uh, th th there was the introduction of the cultural formulation that your listeners might be familiar with. This was kind of a structure for kind of um, identifying certain areas to inquire into in a client's life that would help give you sort of the sociocultural context of their experience. That cultural formulation did represent an improvement over previous versions of the DSM, but it was put 
almost as far back into the DSM manual as you could get. It was put into this appendix, Appendix I. There were only in DSM-IV-TR two more appendices after that. And those appendices were just literally lists of names of people who had worked on the DSM-IV-TR. So, I mean, it really was kind of sending this message, I think, unfortunately, of like, this is where we see culture. It's, you know, almost like an afterthought all the way at the end, all the way at the end. And so, you know, there's been improvement, I think, in the DSM-5. You know, now there are um, sections in the introduction that are kind of nested under this heading of key conceptual frameworks and approaches. So really trying to say this is part of how we view the DSM in its entirety. It's like a key feature um, that talk about the impact of racism and discrimination on diagnosis. And it kind of goes through, you know, definitions of, um, you know, race and that race is a social and not a biological construct. And that, um, you know, there are um, ample examples of discriminatory practices based on race that have impacted folks' mental well-being. Um, there's a discussion of, um, you know, racism at different levels of, of the, you know, the personal level of uh, internalized stigma, of interpersonal aspects of racism in terms of microaggression and more overt manifestations of racism, of um, structural racism and how that has found its way into the mental health system in terms of lack of access to treatment, of um, biases affecting our diagnostic processes, um, and so on. And so I think that that really represents um, something that's that's very different. I mean, it's, it's a positive and kind of hopeful change. Um, you know, there are sections in the text portion that address cultural issues, that address sex and gender issues. Um, uh, so there are movements in the DSM-5-TR, I think, more than ever before, of trying to emphasize the role that culture, um, that diversity of different forms plays in people's experience of the world, of their experience of mental health systems, and of how we treat those individuals. Um, I mean, I think, again, you know, there's there's still obviously um, improvements that can be made. But I, you know, was hopeful when I saw um, those things um, included. And I, I want to go back to something you said earlier about kind of the organizational system and the DSM and the purpose and this is absolutely something that's come up for me as a clinical documentation trainer about the idea of assigning a diagnosis and what's the implication of a diagnosis and how does it affect if somebody wants to join the Air Force? How does it affect um, the possibility for disability benefits? I mean, so many different considerations related to diagnosis. And that for all intents and purposes, and this is how I boil it down, and I'd love your feedback, that the DSM is really about nomenclature, that it's a shared set of terms to describe something so that someone can go from one environment to the next among different practitioners and say, okay, here's this symptom set, and my doctor said that I have major depressive disorder recurrent moderate not that most clients would describe themselves that way, but if they did, um, if their chart says that, um, then it is 
communication to another practitioner to go, okay, then that's associated with XYZ symptoms and gives me kind of a concept of what's going on for this person. Do you agree with that assessment? And I mean, it sounds like you're trying to basically keep it in its place without trying to expand it into much more complex considerations like treatment. Exactly. Yes. I, I 100% agree with that um, view of the DSM, that it really is a shared language, right? It conveys information. If we both are familiar with the DSM and you say, you know, the diagnosis of major depressive disorder immediately, just even knowing that without knowing the severity level or anything, I have a certain number of symptoms in mind, a certain universe of experiences that um, I, you know, would be thinking of that the client who has that diagnosis uh, might be experiencing. Um, and I think, you know, it's um, this, uh, I think, comes from from some of my assessment experiences. Um, you know, I, I remember not infrequently, you know, working with clients doing, you know, comprehensive, maybe it was like a psychodiagnostic evaluation or something like that, where we would do like a very thorough, you know, interview. And clients would sometimes say, you know, um, is this going to be all put down in one place? Because it's exhausting kind of like re-going, like going over this and reviewing this and saying it again and again. And, you know, and I think that when we have a shared language and we have terminology that we can use, it's not that we don't want to know more about the client's experience, but we also don't want to put them through um, having to repeat something that they've told you know, lots of other people. And if that experience was framed in many different ways, it would be hard to avoid that repetition because uh, we wouldn't have that common language. Thank you for that. I, I think that's helpful. And it's with the awareness that the DSM is designed to be used to describe primarily mental behavioral considerations and that in a Western model where it's very fragmented, it's like, okay, a medical diagnosis exists over there treated by that practitioner, and a mental health diagnosis exists over here. And I think the complexity of moving to a model that has more integration between those ideas and those concepts. And I, th I think in looking at the DSM and evolution over time that I think we're getting better at starting to recognize, I mean, I've said it before in other interviews, but the fact that one of the primary risk factors for development of schizophrenia or any psychotic symptoms is cat ownership. We know that they're carried by cats. It can, can be transmitted to humans and contribute to the development of psychotic symptoms. But that's one of those things that you may not get looking at the DSM right now. And I'm really hopeful that maybe we're going to get better at saying, make sure you're ruling out X, Y, and Z with an MD, because here are other considerations and how they could manifest. The more that we start to realize, I think, the holes in the Western system of saying, well, things that relate to gut health are over there and mental health is over here. And we're mm -hmm, going, no, mm -hmm, those are related. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. so that that's just my two cents. Like, I hope we're moving in that direction. 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think issues related to immune system functioning, um, gut health, um, the microbiome, I mean, all of these um, areas are, you know, just such exciting frontiers in terms of our understanding of what might contribute to the development of different kinds of mental health disorders. And I think that as that research um you know, expands and is replicated. My hope is that, you know, it finds its way into the DSM, probably most likely in the text section, in like the sections that were revised for like DSM-5-TR. Because I do think like, you know, the text section is this sort of underutilized section of the DSM. I think a lot of people, because, you know, clinicians are busy, and they've been trained to know of the symptoms of these different disorders, you go right to the criteria sets, right? And kind of ensure that somebody meets criteria and that you're coding it correctly. But there is a lot of really helpful information in those text portions that kind of, you know, is a place where there can be kind of a greater exploration of some of these risk and prognostic factors and patterns of comorbidity and differences in symptom expression across the lifespan or, um, you know, in, in different in different ways that, uh is where some of this really exciting research, I think, can come in. And and yes, I think, you know, there is still um, too much, I think, of a division between kind of medical, like not, there's both a criticism of the DSM as being too medicalized, like, right, coming too much from a medical model. Um, but there's also, I think, um, on the other side of it, sometimes a failure to, do what you're saying, which is to kind of integrate um, different areas of, of medicine and to understand it's all happening within the same, you know, system. Thank you for kind of entertaining that little jaunt, because as I see it, how we view mental health is rapidly changing around us based on the research that's coming out for us to understand, like you said, the role of gut health, the conversations about inflammation, about particular risk factors, they're really interesting things. And there is also, I think, our natural desire, and I'm looking over at my DSM-5TR as we speak, it's like to be able to grab a book and go, but here are all the things, um, but also appreciating like we, we can't capture all the things and that they're continually evolving. And so we keep coming up with modifications to integrate this new information, but we can't do it continually real time. And so as you said, there was nine years between the DSM-5 and the TR. And so what's coming next and how long is that going to take as we compile more information? Exactly. Exactly. You know, I remember when DSM-5 was coming out and one of the biggest um, anticipated changes was to the section on the personality disorders and and like really reconceptualizing that whole model. And everyone, you know, was, was excited to see, I shouldn't say everyone, <laughs> no, I was excited to see. Uh, <laughs> and and at the 11th hour, they decided not to change it. I mean, I literally think, I think the DSM-5 um, came out in like, I don't know, in the springtime, you know, and, and it was like the previous December, like some committees met and said like, this is, this is too radical of a change. And it is too, um, 
and it's not user-friendly, and it's going to be difficult for practitioners working with clients to be able to implement this system. So there was a decision to kind of hold back. So I think these things happen very slowly sometimes, unfortunately, and and maybe kind of feels like glacially sometimes, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, that may be just the realities of trying to have this manual do many things, you know, to reflect and be helpful to researchers who are investigating these conditions, to also to practitioners who are treating folks and trying to get them access to treatment. You know, it's trying to do a lot of different things. And so maybe that's in part why the change is slow. I think that's a really good point in the consideration for the way that it's being utilized by different groups. That's a really good point because I certainly, I'm curious often about the research, but when I'm looking at any edition of the DSM, I'm looking for clarity about diagnosis and how to categorize something, but that's what my brain is doing as a treating clinician. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly, you know, and um, and there are, you know, there's a whole section in the DSM. I mean, this has been true for um additions prior to the DSM-5-TR, where there are these conditions for further study, where there are these, you know, syndromes where there has been some promise in the research literature of like, you know, this seems like it has kind of a predictable course, it can be diagnosed reliably, it's got certain correlates, um, uh, you know, um, there seems to be clinical utility potentially in in bringing that disorder into kind of the fold of like the main section of the DSM where um, the uh, the other disorders are. Um, but it takes a while for those to move because, you know, I think there is, I mean, there's been a criticism of just the explosion of diagnoses in the DSM. I think there's something like almost 300 in the DSM-5 system. And that's a lot of diagnoses, um, you know, and, and there have been criticisms about are we pathologizing, um, you know, normal aspects of human experience. I mean, I think that was one of the, you know, there's this new disorder, prolonged grief disorder, and, and that kind of just goes into that area of, you know, um, I mean, it's really designed to be, there was a, a disorder that was in um, the DSM-5 in that section of, you know, needs future study, basically, that was called persistent complex bereavement disorder, I think was the term. And then it made its way in DSM-5-TR into the main section that has the, the coded disorders um, as this prolonged grief disorder. And, you know, it's really... Um, this disorder that's designed to capture um, grief reactions that are kind of above and beyond what might be expected in the individual's culture or environment, you know. Um, but I think it's not without controversy because, you know, do some folks feel like, well, this paves the way for just assigning that diagnosis? There is a criterion that requires 
this reaction to be above and beyond what you would expect culturally. So, you know, if someone is having a grief reaction that might meet the time criteria or something or the symptom criteria for that particular disorder, you really buy the book shouldn't give it because it might be considered to be normative. But will people pay attention to that criterion, which is one of the later ones, or will they really look at the symptom criteria and say, yep, they meet that, they meet this, they meet this, they meet this, it's been there for a month, you know, the death has happened in the last 12 months for an adult or last six months for a child, and then just give the diagnosis. So it's it's that tricky area of like, where is the boundary between what we call a disorder and and what we don't. Right, absolutely. What, what is quote unquote disordered and who defined it? Um, and I think that's that's certainly been one of the conversations over time when you're looking at the origin of the DSM and looking at language that was utilized in prior editions that is totally unacceptable now. <laughs> like words that are used to describe different marginalized people go, whoa, okay, cool. So we had a book that was further marginalizing folks. That's great. Because it was looking at things from a very um, Euro-normative white male lens. And I, for one, am happy to see that we're acknowledging the major limitations in having only one set of lenses <laughs> describe what is okay and quote-unquote normative versus what is quote unquote disorder. Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's a product of who was at the table, yeah. you know, to um to make these decisions. And, you know, I think there's a much more diverse group of individuals who had input on the DSM five and five TR. Um, they were still mostly though psychiatrists, mostly MDs. And so, you know, there is that, I think, a legitimate concern that can be raised about, um, you know, were the diverse viewpoints of many different mental health practitioners um, at that table? Or was it, you know, coming from a particular model of education and training, you know, that is different than what other mental health professionals who are not MDs you know, experience. Of course, there's overlap, but there's there's also important differences. So, um, yeah, it, I, I think it's still a work in in progress. But I think there's a you know a greater understanding and commitment to. I mean, I don't know if it, if the DSM uses the term biopsychosocial anywhere. I'd have to. I should probably know this, but I'd, I'd have to do like a, a a search in in the text for it. But I think that there is this acknowledgement. It's not a theoretical orientation per se, but this acknowledgement of, you know, there used to be that old idea of like organic versus functional psychiatric disorders, like the organic ones were like rooted in the brain and, you know, everything is, is rooted in the brain and everything is rooted in environment and every, you know, there's all of these diverse influences that happen from, you know, the earliest of times um, that affect our psychological well-being. And so, I think that the DSM-5 is is better at acknowledging the environmental, the personal, the social, the cultural, the biological um, contributions, right, to 
to mental health disorders. And a lot of that, I think, comes in that text portion where there are these different sections that, you know, talk about all of these different kinds of factors. Um, so hopefully that will will continue. I think it is important for us as practitioners to kind of consider this of where the field came from, where it is now, and where it's going, and to keep that in mind. Um, because it is a power system is really what we're foundationally talking about. And I think our awareness of practitioners operating within that system, that when we are assigning a diagnosis, what are the implications that come with that about me as the person with some fancy pieces of paper on the wall to be able to say, here's what's quote unquote wrong with you. Um, but to be aware of that power dynamic dynamic, and it seems that you're, you're saying it's coming out more in the DSM of this more humble attitude of awareness that like this is in the ether of what we're, we're discussing instead of ignoring that it's part of the conversation. I agree with that. And you know, what the what the DSM can't do, and I think we have a as an obligation as as clinicians is to, you know, determine how do we convey this information to our clients? How do we do it in a way that is sensitive, that is humane, that is um, helpful, um, you know, because ultimately we want to help our clients achieve the goals that they have set for themselves. Um, you know, sometimes those goals are around symptom relief. You know, sometimes somebody comes in and says, I want to feel less depressed. I want to be able to sleep more, have more energy. Sometimes they're not really so directly linked to symptoms. And, uh, you know, we need to, um, I think oftentimes we don't spend enough time kind of thinking about how do we you know, deliver this information? How do we have conversations with clients that are collaborative and helpful when we're conveying information about what our impressions are um, about a diagnosis? And I think we have to go into it in a humble way of, of saying, I, I don't have all the answers. This is what, you know, to the best of my knowledge based on what you've shared with me, I think may be going on and to have a conversation, not just kind of a one-way flow of of information. And I think that's something that, you know, the DSM obviously can't can't teach us how to do. Um, that's something we have to, um, you know, think about in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I appreciate that you brought up that consideration because it absolutely has been used historically and is can still be used to this day to be able to categorize and say, well, you go over there and this is you. And it goes back to the difference in language of are we saying somebody has depression or depressive disorder or that they are depressed? Is somebody bipolar or do they have bipolar 2 disorder? Um, so I think it comes down to the language. And I appreciate what you're saying about the sensitivity in presentation and awareness of this information. Um, this topic I mean, we're just scratching the surface and, and I'm aware of the clock as we're having this conversation. And I, I'm so glad that we kind of opened up this little bubble about the origin and the limitation and the growth of the DSM over time. For our listeners with the time we have left today, are there any other points that when you're sitting here as someone who knows this inside out going, okay, like, what do I really need to convey? What are some of the most important other takeaways from the DSM-5TR 
what are they? Have we not discussed them yet? Um, if you if you don't mind doing a little bit more information dub for me. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. So um, we kind of talked a little bit about this new diagnosis that's there, this prolonged grief disorder diagnosis, just to let your listeners know that diagnosis is located in the trauma and stressor related disorders chapter. So it's in the chapter where there is PTSD and adjustment disorders and acute stress disorders, conditions like that. Because if you look at the symptoms that are in that particular um, disorder, you know, there are some um, symptoms that kind of um, relate to trauma reactions. You know, um, examples would be like feeling um, emotionally numb or feeling um, that your identity has been disrupted or trying to avoid reminders of the person who has passed. And so there's a list of symptoms that you need a few of um, over a month long period for most days. And you also have to have this intense yearning or longing or preoccupation with the person who has passed. And um, if you meet those criteria and it is, um, you know, kind of beyond what you would expect someone of the client's, you know, cultural group to be experiencing, then that's um, a, a condition that you can give. And again, it's, it's you know, it, it can be fraught with some controversy. Um, you, you know, it may provide a way to get folks treatment. Um, if they are able to be given um, that diagnosis. And there are some risks um, that have been documented in the literature about what happens if we don't treat people who are having these more complex grief reactions. So for instance, among older adults, there's a risk of earlier progressive cognitive decline. So if we can get in there and, and help get people treatment, and this is a vehicle for doing that, um, that may be helpful. Um, just kind of in the service of some other highlights and changes, um, there's another um, category. It's, it's. I guess you could say it's sort of a new diagnosis. It's called unspecified mood disorder. So your your listeners may recall that the mood disorders are separated into two different chapters. There's the depressive disorders chapter and the bipolar and related disorders chapter. And within each of those chapters, there's a way to indicate if someone doesn't meet criteria for one of the specified uh, disorders that you can give this kind of catch-all diagnosis like an other specified or unspecified depressive disorder or an other specified or other unspecified bipolar and related disorder. It's a very kind of wordy diagnosis. But there could be cases where you're seeing a client, they're presenting with some significant mood symptoms. You feel like there's distress or impairment present, but you're not sure whether these are depressive symptoms or hypomanic slash manic symptoms. So you're not sure whether you would give an other specified depressive disorder or an other specified bipolar disorder, because you're not sure which pole those mood symptoms really fall on. So an example would be a client maybe who comes in who's very agitated, irritable, they're having some disruptions in their appetite, they're having some disruptions in their sleep, they're not really able to describe to you, do they feel well rested after uh, not getting sleep, which would make you think more mania or hypomania, or do they feel exhausted after not getting sleep, which would make you think more depression. So you've got this kind of mixture of symptoms. They're really distressed about it, 
you know, it's impairing them. You want to give a diagnosis. Now there's this thing called unspecified mood disorder where you don't have to specify, is it depressive? Is it bipolar uh, in nature that you could assign um, to a client? So that's another change. Um, There have been some codes that are in the section of the manual called other conditions that may be a focus of clinical attention. Your your um, listeners may be familiar with, this is where the so-called Z codes are located. Um, and so these are not mental uh, disorder diagnoses, but things that you might be focusing on in treatment. So there are some new codes related to um, suicidal behavior and non-suicidal um, self-injury and some different codes that you can give. There used to be in DSM-5, not 5TR, a kind of a vague um, Z code that was um, called personal history of self-harm. And you could give that if someone had, you know, perhaps engaged in a suicidal behavior or non-suicidal self-injury, but it didn't really make a distinction between those two types of behavior. And so now there are these Z codes that you can document that. Now, you might say, well, you know, what if the person has um, a diagnosis of major depressive disorder and... Um, you know, would their suicidal behavior be kind of already captured in that? You could give these codes in addition to that diagnosis. And an advantage of that is it really does bring to the forefront if someone's looking at a diagnostic summary, an intake report, it's there in black and white that this has been a a significant experience that somebody has had that is, you know, um, in need of clinical attention. And the you could criticize the DSM in some ways for not attending enough to suicide uh, assessment. Um, and there are sections in the text now that um, that uh, try to address suicide assessment a little bit better. So in the text portion of the of the disorders, but this is another way that you could document it. It's not a mental disorder, but it's a Z. It's like essentially like a Z code. Um, some of them start with letters other than Z. I don't want to get your listeners too confused about that, but um, and then I would say, you know, one kind of practical change um, for your listeners who are familiar with DSM-5, and if they look in their DSM-5 and they look in the section that has the disorders and they see those numeric codes, they'll see two sets of codes. They'll see a code that's in like black ink, that's all numbers, and they'll see a kind of grayed out code in parentheses that has like letters, like F something. And those were uh, the ICD-9 and ICD-10 codes. When DSM-5 was published, um, ICD-9 codes were still in use, but then there was going to be a transition to ICD-10 codes. So both were included in DSM-5. Now, if you look in DSM-5-TR, those old ICD-9 codes are gone. It's just the ICD-10 codes. Um, so, so that's kind of a, a, a kind of an administrative change, um, you know, to to the DSM. Um, there's a lot of different, you know, text changes as I've mentioned. Um, that section that now appears in the DSM 5TR on on um, issues related to suicide is called association with suicidal thoughts or behavior. There used to be a section 
And for some disorders, that was just labeled suicide risk. And they've just kind of expanded that heading to be a little bit more specific and to talk about association with suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Um, so, so that's something that's that's different. Um, I should mention, I don't want to get, um, I hope this isn't too confusing. When I was mentioning those codes for suicidal behavior and non-suicidal self-injury, the one for suicidal behavior is very specific that it's got to be a behavior. In other words, if someone has suicidal thoughts, but they haven't acted on it, you're not technically supposed to use that code. And that description of when you use that code um, for suicidal behavior is very specific that it's not based on whether or not the behavior caused or could have caused some serious physical threat to the person. It's their intent. So if the intention was, I did this because I wanted to die, that's enough to document it, uh, no matter what you know the behavior was. But there has to be some behavior with it as well. Thank you. Um, I, I really appreciate you kind of circling back to some of those intricacies, because going back to what you said earlier, to view the DSM as shared language among professionals, that's one of those elements that's really helpful for us to be able to include or not include um, in order to convey what we have seen or documented about somebody's care. Um, Stephanie, there's so much more I could ask. Like there, I mean, you teach a whole course on this, so obviously we can only do so much in an hour. Um, for our listeners, please um, tell them how to get in touch with you, how to um, learn about your book and other resources you recommend. Again, for our listeners, this is Dr. Stephanie Wu. Sure. Thanks so much um, for this time. I, I really enjoyed talking with you about the DSM. And if um, your listeners want to get in touch with me, my email address is Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E dot woo, W-O-O, at pepperdine.edu. Feel free to email me. Um, the textbook is called Diagnosis and Treatment of Mental Disorders Across the Lifespan. It's published by Wiley. Um, you can find it on Amazon by just Googling my name or Diagnosis and Treatment of Mental Disorders, and it should come up. Um, and, you know, a great resource uh, that I didn't get a chance to mention, but just wanted to direct your listeners to, there is a lot of assessment instruments that are on the American Psychiatric Association's website. These are publicly available, you know, free of charge, the symptom assessment measures, um, expanded modules for the cultural formulation interview. So different kind of more expanded questions to inquire about different aspects of culture. There are interview questions for, you know, older adults and kids, and there's just a lot of resources. And I feel like that's kind of a hidden area on, um, uh, American Psychiatric Association's website. So if you go to the section where it has the DSM, there should be a little box kind of to the right, and it has assessment measures. And if you click on there, you can just find a lot of different tools that may be helpful in terms of just helping you um, with diagnosis, with treatment planning, with tracking treatment progress. Um, I'm a big assessment person, so I love um, using assessment measures. And um, there are a lot of, of nice ones that are available on that website. Fantastic. 
Um, thank you. Thank you again for coming and sharing this with us. It certainly taught me a great deal. And I'm sure the same is true for our listeners. It is always absolutely wonderful to talk with you. Thank you again for joining us, Stephanie. Thank you so much, Beth, for having me. I loved being here. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.